If you will turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 5, and you can stand as you find that, Romans 5, and I will read verses 12 through 21. Romans 5, beginning in verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death spread through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had, reigned, who had not sinned in the likeness of Adam's offense, who is a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the transgression, for if by the transgression of the one the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression, resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions, resulting in justification." For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners... Even so, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. And the law came in that the transgression might increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. That as sin reigned in death, even so, grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's pray. God, we thank you again for your word and for all that you have done for us in Christ, who has gone before us as the author and the perfecter of our faith, who is the one who has completed all that was necessary for our salvation, having fully satisfied your justice. And on the basis of his death for us, we know that we have been justified, reconciled to you, and that he now lives to save us. We thank you, God, for his life. We thank you for your word. And we again, Lord, just want to have our hearts surrendered to you, that you would speak to us, build into us, bring us into greater conformity to Christ God, as is your will. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Well, this is a good day to deal with this passage of Scripture here, because um, this passage of Scripture, as you notice as I was reading through it, is talking about our... First founding father, Adam. We have a good group of founding fathers for our country. Adam is not one that we're necessarily all that proud of for our human race. But not just Adam. This is Adam is served here as a contrast and as initially as a type of Christ, but a type that doesn't follow much because he's more of a contrast than he is of a parallel. But there is a parallel. Speaking of founding fathers, a father of one of our um, staff interns at His Hills, written another um, book, history book, Forged in Faith, has just come out. He sent me a copy of it, Rod Gregg, How Faith Shaped the Birth of the Nation. 
from 1607 to 1776. Remarkable book. I've read about only about the first half, and um, it's usually the first half that you read is the first half. And, um, and it's... <laughs> And it's a, it's a great um, account of how all, thir- all 13 of the, of the original colonies of this country, all 13 of them, were formed on the motivation of wanting um, freedom to worship according to our own dictates of conscience. All 13 colonies. And faith and the, and the godliness and, and, and the humility, the integrity of these founding fathers is really amazing. On the very first Continental Congress in 1774, all the 12 delegates from 12 of the 13 colonies assembled to begin to talk about how they could come up with a constitution that would, that would bind them all together. And most of these men, again, were, were religiously educated, all of them godly men, and, and they had their first day of meeting. Second day, it starts to disintegrate into some disunity. And so one of the men present says, you know, this is going to destroy, it's going to fall apart before it ever gets started. We need to commit ourselves to starting every day in prayer and in the Word of God. And so they voted on it. They said, all right. They asked one of the men present who happened to be a pastor if he would come prepare the next morning to pray and to share a devotional thought. He was Anglican, happened to be, and he read from the book of prayer that the Anglican church put out, and the scripture for that day just happened to be, so he just wanted to show God's providence in this, was Psalm 35. And and he read the first ten verses of Psalm 35 where it says, Contend, O Lord, with those who contend with me. Fight against those who fight against me. Take hold of buckler and shield and rise up for my help. Draw also the spear and the battle axe to meet those who pursue me. Say to my soul, I am your salvation. Let Let those be ashamed and dishonored who seek my life. And they saw this as being directly applicable to their situation. They saw themselves as being persecuted for no reason other than they wanted to worship as God had, has designed by their own conscience according to the Word of God. And so he read these ten verses, and then he, um, he prayed, and his prayer went something like, like this. Plead, um, sorry, O Lord, our Heavenly Father, King of kings and Lord of lords, who, who dost from thy throne behold all the dwellers upon earth and reignest with power supreme and uncontrolled over all kingdoms, empires, and governments. Look down in mercy, we beseech thee, upon these our American states who have fled to thee from the road of the oppressor and thrown themselves upon thy gracious protection, desiring henceforth to be, to be dependent only on thee. To thee they have appealed for the righteousness of their cause. To thee do they look up for thy for that countenance and support which thou alone canst give. Take them, therefore, Heavenly Father, under thy nurturing care. Give them wisdom and counsel, valor and field. Defeat the malicious designs of our cruel adversaries. Convince them of the unrighteousness of their cause. 
And if they persist in their purposes, O let the voice of thy unerring justice sounding in their hearts constrain them to drop the weapons of war from their innerved hands in the day of battle. Be thou present, O God of wisdom, and direct the counsels of this honorable assembly. Enable them to settle things upon the best and surest foundation, that the scene of blood may be speedily closed, that harmony and peace may be effectually restored, and truth and justice, religion and piety prevail and flourish among thy people. Preserve the health of their bodies and the vigor of their minds. Shower down upon them and the millions they represent such temporal blessings as thou seest expedient for them in this world and crown them with everlasting glory in the world to come. All this we ask in the name and through the merits of Jesus Christ thy Son, our Savior. Amen. Isn't that great? That was the third day of the First Continental Congress of the United States in 1774. Some of the delegates were moved to tears. One marveled, John Adams marveled, that this was as penitent, as affectionate, as sublime, as devout a prayer as I had ever heard offered up to heaven. And then one of the men present passed a, 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 passed a resolution that from that day on, every congressional meeting would begin in prayer. And that's why we, our Congress still today opens up every meeting in prayer, because of that meeting in 1774 on the third day that they met together. Great book. Great godly men that God gave us in the founding of this nation. In Romans 5, 1-11, Paul is speaking about the blessings that come to us through our justification by faith in Jesus Christ. And in this chapter, he says, because we have been justified by faith, remember, three things we can exalt in. We can exalt in our future, knowing that it brings the glory of God. We can exalt in our present trials, knowing they have nothing to do with God's wrath, but they have to do with simply God working in us, the very character of God. God loves us much more now that we are His. Before, we were, while we were yet sinners, helpless, ungodly, and enemies of God, God demonstrates, in the present tense, demonstrates His own love toward us by giving His Son to die for us. How much more now that we are His and we are His children? We can exalt in our future. It is the glory of God. We can exalt in our present trials. It is God working His character in us and a hope that does not disappoint. And we can exalt in God Himself. And now he says, it's almost like there's a question that comes into Paul's mind of how does this happen? How can God apply the merits of Jesus Christ to us? And and to get to that point, he has to first explain how um, we are related to Adam. And, and this is deep water here. And I, I, you know, I've studied this passage and, and I read a lot on it. And, and, I, and everybody that reads on it, they, man, this, this is deep water here. And it's, it's, I, I, I know I'm only skimming the surface on it. So this is a place where you can spend the rest of your life studying and you can help me out with it. But here's the thing that, that he's saying. We don't fully, nobody fully understands the nature, the full nature of how we are related to Adam and how Adam's transgression and the death that came from that sin is passed on to us. We know that it's happened. There's no debate about that. But how the mechanism of that, how that works Nobody can say for sure. 
The two main views that are given is either it's a federal headship or it's an organic, seminal, kind of biological relationship. There's pros and cons with both views, so there's probably truth in both of them. But here's how he starts out, verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and then death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. Now that is a huge verse. Look at some of the things that he's saying here just in this first verse. One man, through one man's act of sin, sin entered the world and then death spread to all. So death, on the basis of this verse, was not in the world until Adam sinned. Death is a consequence of sin. God didn't create sin. God didn't create death. Death is the enemy of God. And if you have any loved one who's died, and you know how you hate death, the Bible tells us God hates it even more. It is the last enemy that will be put under the feet of Christ, and then subjected to, the, to be put under the feet of the Father. It is the enemy of God, not just our enemy. God didn't invent it. It is a consequence, the logical, reasonable con- um, consequence to sin. Death came through sin, and death and sin came through one man. Now, we may debate, even among Christians, uh, whether God used evolution or not to, to make this world. I personally don't feel that he did. And this is one of those verses here, which to me would speak that he had one man, and one man sinned, and through that one man's sin, we all die. So if there's one man who started this all off, to me it says there's one man that we, that we started with. Not a bunch of people who just kind of developed at the same time, but one man. That's not the main thing here. But what we do know, and we can all agree on this, believer or unbeliever, that we all, all the six or seven billion people that are on this planet right now, have a common problem. We're all going to die. And we all sin. And we kind of like it. It's in all of us, and the most virtuous man on earth, if he's honest with himself, there are times when he is at least mentally entertaining the most vile thoughts. It is in all of us. It it pulls all of us. All of us want it, and it holds us together in our common humanity. I personally don't see how evolution can explain that. There ought to be distinctions among us if evolution were true. But what we see is commonality. We all die. How can you explain that on the basis of evolution? If anything, evolution ought to tell you that things live, not things die. How is it that death is in this world? And God tells us. Death is in this world, not just because things on their own are running down. Things are not, God did not design things to run down. 
God did not design the second law of thermodynamics. That came into the world because a man sinned, and sin resulted in death. It was not God's design, not His intent. And through that man's sin, all die. But then he says, all sinned. How? And what? How? Why does he? He's going to explain this more, but he introduces it here. And I think there's two things that he means by all sinned. One, and this is where it's hard for us to grasp, is that because Adam is our founding father, before any of us were ever born, we were in Adam. And what Adam did, we did. The parallel to this, the scripture mentions in the book of Hebrews, when Abraham offered tithes to Melchizedek. And Hebrews makes the point that Levi, one of the sons of Jacob, who had not yet been born, Jacob hadn't even been born yet, Levi was in Abraham. And that when Abraham offered tithes and, and offerings to Melchizedek, that Levi was offering tithes to Melchizedek. And Levi wasn't even born yet. And so Levi was doing what Abraham did. And that seems to be one sense that Paul is picking up on here. We are doing. We did what Abraham did. Even though we weren't there, and he's going to come back to that, and he goes, even though we didn't sin in the same way that he sinned, obviously none of us actually took a fruit, a forbidden fruit, and ate of it. And yet... We were in Adam. And when Adam sinned, we sinned because we were in Adam. That's a very important point. This headship, whether it's, whether it's seminal, organic, or whether it's federal, this headship exists. And what was true of Adam has become true of you and me. But it's also true, and Paul's going to state this, that not only did we sin in Adam, but we also sinned even though Adam's been dead for thousands of years. We sin on our own, Adam or not. Now, I just want to highlight the main key points in this paragraph, because there's a few of them, and, and, and it's a difficult paragraph. I'm just going to skim the, the surface and give you the main things, I think, about um, what he's going to say here. But just to work through a little bit more. Verse 13, For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Now, it, it seems to be he's saying there that, that sin is in the world, but it's not reckoned as a violation of law if there's no violation of law. In other words, Adam had a particular, as it were, law given to him. Don't eat of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That was a law. He ate it anyway. That law didn't apply to anybody else after Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden. Because nobody else could do that. That was something that only pertained to him. So, but everybody else continues to sin. But they can't be charged as transgressors of a particular law if no particular law was given. But they can be charged as sinners. In what sense? Remember chapter 1? that that which is evident about God is known within them and is known to them. But they have a conscience and they have the witness of God written on creation. 
and they refuse to acknowledge God. They suppress the truth of God in unrighteousness. They do not give thanks to God, and in their foolish hearts they become darkened. Men prior to the Mosaic Law were still charged as sinners, even though they were not in violation of a particular law. They were in violation of their conscience and in violation of the revelation of God in creation. And they suppress that truth in unrighteousness as all humanity does. And God says, you are guilty of personal sin. As well as, as being in Adam and his sin and his death being something that we inherit. Moving on, verse 14. Nevertheless, even though there was no law, death reigned from Adam until the lawgiver, Moses. Even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of Adam's offense. Nobody else took of the tree. Who is a type of him who was to come. Adam being a type of Christ. But the free gift is not like the transgression. So, so verse 14 again. All have sinned. Therefore all have died. Even though we have not sinned in the same exact way Adam did. We're dying because we're related to Adam. And because of our own sin. Those things cause us to die. And then he'll start talking about the distinction between Adam's sin and transgression. And we inherit death. And Jesus with his righteous life. And we inherit righteousness. Justification from him. But the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one. The many died. Much more did the grace of God and the gift of the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. I like that phrase much more. Remember we saw it back in the first paragraph of chapter 5. Much more. Remember verse 9. Much more then. Having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. Verse 10. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more then. Having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And now, much more again in verse 15. And this is the first thing I want to highlight about just, getting, just skimming over the top of this paragraph. And this is, a, this is meant to be a positive statement on our identity with Christ. It's not a negative statement on what we inherited from our founding father, Abraham but rather it's a positive statement on what we have in Christ. Much more. Man, we can't deny what we inherited from Adam, can we? Sin and death. And it seems like it's the much more, much of the time. Oh God, how much worse can it get? And I I read that prayer of Habakkuk and he's going, God, how much longer? Why won't you do something? Much more than the sin of this world is the grace that is offered to us in Christ. Much more. The contrast is as far superior as light is to to darkness. Much more. Much more. So this is the first of the much mores, and he's saying much more life over death in verse 15. 
And then going down to verse 17. For if by the transgression of the one death reigned through the one much more, those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. So here the much more of the righteousness of Christ over the transgression of Adam. And then a third one, even though it's not much more, it's the same idea of verse 20. And the law came in that the transgression might increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So we have much more life over death, much more righteousness over transgression, much more grace over sin. Paul meant this to be a positive statement. For whatever we inherited from Adam, and as as debilitating as it may seem, what we have in Christ is far superior to anything that came into this world through Adam. Much more. Amen? Much more. The overwhelming work and power of Christ in contrast to Adam. Let me highlight a second thing here. And it goes back here to verse 15. But the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one, the many died. Now here's, this is interesting thing. Many died. How many died when Adam sinned? Are there any people who have ever been born who will not die? So how many died? All. But he's, so here, in a figure of speech, when he's saying many died, he's speaking of the all. For many died. And then he says, much more did the grace of God and the gift of the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. Follow the parallelism. So if many died, and many means all, and many can receive the grace of Jesus Christ, then the many that can receive that grace is also all. Go down to verse 18 and 19. So then, as through the one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so, through the one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. Past tense, it's done. Justification of life is the result of Jesus' one act of righteousness, not to some men, to all men. Just as condemnation came to all men through one act of disobedience, justification comes to all men through one act of righteousness and obedience. Verse 19, he follows the thought. For as through one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. And again, see the parallelism. Many is in reference to all. Even so, through the one act of obedience, the many will be made righteous. The point that Paul's making here is that in Adam, all die. And in Christ, all live. In Adam, all were condemned. And in Christ, all All are justified. The many clearly means all in verse 18. Not some. All. Jesus died for all. And all means everybody just as much as all means everyone received death through Adam. Everyone receives life through Jesus Christ.
The point here is just that simple, is that Jesus brings life to all men in the same fashion that Adam brings death to all men. That's the contrast and also a point of comparison. But that is not to say that every single person who's ever been lived is going to, when he dies, go to be with the Lord in heaven. This is not teaching universal salvation, but it is teaching the potential for universal salvation. In other words, there is no reason for any person to die and go to hell. Because everything that needs to be done for his salvation has already been done. God sees him as justified. He does not need to die and suffer an eternity of of torment and separation from God. He is, in Christ, justified. The problem is, he hasn't put his faith in Christ. Now, how do I get that from this verse, from this passage? Look at verse 17. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one. So, how many did Jesus die for? All. How many are justified in Christ? All. But how many are those, is that death and justification applied to? Those who receive. There is the potential for all men to actually be saved. Because Christ actually died for all. And his death was, the, was sufficient for the sin of the whole world. But only some will be saved. Only those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life. So the many refers to all, but the righteousness in life that are given to all will only be appropriated by those who receive, receiving the free gift. There is no universalism in the actuality of how history is being played out. The contrast between Adam and Christ is is the next major thing here. You have in Adam condemnation and death. You have in, in Christ righteousness and life. In Adam there is judgment. In Christ there is justification. In Adam we have sin reigning unto death. And in Christ we have grace reigning unto life. In Adam we have death reigning. In Christ we reign who have received the grace of God. In Adam, there is the disobedience of the one. In Christ, there is the obedience of the one. And the transgression of the one, the act of righteousness of the other. And I find it again, it's so instructive that all through Scripture, more and more I'm seeing this, that that God brings us back to that point of obedience. How is it that sin entered the world? Through disobedience. Through one man's act of disobedience. How is it that life and righteousness can enter into this world? Through the obedience of one. And Jesus could not have saved us and been disobedient. It was only by living as an obedient son could life come to you and me. And it is only as I live by faith in Christ which manifests itself in a loving obedience can life 
come to anybody else through me. I cannot claim to be living in loving relationship with God and walking in disobedience and my life simultaneously to be a blessing to others any more than Jesus could bring life to me while being disobedient. It can't happen. This is why Paul says, I will not presume to speak of anything except what Jesus Christ has accomplished in me. And the rest of the verse is, we always stop short of it, that which results in the obedience of the Gentiles. In faith and in deed. That which results in the obedience of the Gentiles. This is what God has saved us for. To take those who are born into disobedience and to bring us into the life of His Son, which is a life of loving, dependent obedience. It is the heart of the Son. Remember when your kids were little? Maybe real little. Maybe it didn't last very long. But man, how much they just delighted to do what you said. Maybe you had to think way back. <laughs> I can remember, I've told you all this, my grandfather, he smoked two packs of cigarettes a day, smoked a cigar and a pipe, and when he smoked the cigar down so far that he couldn't hold it anymore, he stuffed it in his pipe and he smoked the rest of it. <laughs> smoked all day long. And I would sit right on my grandfather's lap in the cloud with him. It's a wonder I don't have lung cancer today. And I, because I, I love my grandfather. And I didn't care that I smelled like smoke, and, you know, and, and that he smelled like smoke. It's my granddad. And I just loved to be in his presence. And he would say, Charlie, go get me something to drink. I was up, man. What do you want? And I'd go get the drink for him. Yes, sir. Charlie, go out there and catch that tomcat that just knocked over my bird bath. I don't know how I'm going to catch that tomcat, but yes, sir, I go and try and catch the tomcat. Whatever he wanted, I delighted to obey. How did my grandfather know that I love him? Because I long to be with him, and I long to do what he said. That's what love looks like. You want to be in one another's presence, and you delight to please one another. There's nothing legalistic about that. It is the expression of love. I want to do the will of my Father. And as different authors have pointed out, as Jesus grew as a man, he never lost that childlike spirit, that spirit of loving, dependent obedience. See, there are things that as you grow, you should never lose. And that's one of them. That childlikeness. We love our Father we are dependent upon our Father, and we delight to do the will of our Father, whatever it is. I read one author recently, and he says, what do you think would be Jesus' reaction if by some stretch of the imagination, the Father were to come to Jesus and said, we need to do it again. I need you to go back to earth, and I need you to again die on a cross in utter humility and shame. And you know what it would be. He would jump up from his throne and without any hesitation, do it all over again. Because he loves his Father. He loves his Father. That heart of dependent obedience, loving obedience to his Father. It is by his loving obedience that we are saved. Saved so that we would be lovingly obedient. Just as Jesus is. This is to the glory of God. And by what stretch of the imagination can I look at God's word and say, this is what it says, 
And that's where it's going to stay. And claim to love my God. That's not the spirit of Jesus. The Jesus who saved us, saved us in loving obedience to his Father. And he lives in me to make me what he is, a loving, obedient child of God. It's a good thing. And then just wrapping it up, we see coming to the end of this passage, one of the several purposes of the law mentioned in the Word of God. Verse 20. The law came, the law came in that the transgression might be less. The law came in order to hinder sin. That is one of the purposes of the law. But that's not what's mentioned here. Here, God gave the law in order that the transgression might increase. Increase. Why would he do that? I think just to show us, to strip away all the deception and to show us what we are truly like so that we would be drawn to Jesus. People today are are sometimes, and I think it's probably a good thing, using the Ten Commandments as a witnessing tool for for introducing people to Jesus. And I've heard of people, and Patsy and I were having a conversation with one of her friends when we were up in Washington recently, and and she was saying that she she goes door-to-door with a guy, and this is sometimes the method that he uses. And he'll just say, listen, you know, if you were to die and, and, you know, and God would say, why should I allow you into my kingdom, what would you say? And people will often say, well, I've lived a pretty good life. And the guy says, you know, I, I imagine you're probably a pretty decent person, probably maybe lived a better life than I have. But how good is good? Well, I keep the commandments. Really? You know, okay, let's talk about that. Have you ever looked on a woman with lust? You've committed adultery. Well, that's one of the commandments. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Have you ever said anything that wasn't 100% true about another person? Well, you've borne false witness. You ever taken anything that's not yours? Well, you're a thief. And you just go right through it. Idolater, taking God's name in vain, thief, adulterer, murderer. Well, you know, you're not very good, are you? And that's one of the purposes of the law, is to lead us to Jesus. But it also here, the main thing that the idea is given is to make sin, the transgression, increase. So that we can see ourselves for what we are. But it doesn't just stop there. With the increase in transgression, there is also an abounding of grace. God doesn't just leave us to our transgression. And, but he, gives, he pours out his grace all the more. Again, there'll never be an excuse for any of us. Oh, God, I just couldn't do any better. I mean, the people I live among and how bad it is here. And God's grace is abundant. Where transgression, where sin is increased, grace abounds all the more. That as sin reigned in death, even so, grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is a very positive section of Scripture. I can't fully understand how we're related to Adam. 
Clearly, we are. <laughs> we all die, and we all sin. We are all related to Adam. But I know this, even though I can't understand it, that same mystery that it is, how Adam's sin could be applied to me, is the same principle which justifies the atoning grace of God in Christ to be applied to you and me. If I can inherit Adam's sin and death, which I have, by that same principle of headship, I can by faith receive the free gift that's been offered to me in Christ, and I can inherit life and righteousness which will reign in life in Christ. I can choose this day who will be my head. I can't choose... Whether I can't choose the fact that Adam was my founding father any more than I can choose the founding fathers of this nation. But I can choose if I'm going to live there or not. Or I can today, by faith, come and receive of Christ and reign in this life which is full of death. That's where I want to live. I want to walk in His victory, led in His victory, which he always leads us into in Christ, reigning in life. And his life, again, is much, much more than the sin and death of this world. It's going to be present, but it doesn't have to rule. We can reign in life through Jesus Christ and all that's been given to us in him. Which begs the question, how? That's chapter 6. Let me close this in prayer.